0: Well, we are starting. We started the series last week called "Led by the Spirit," wanting to have an understanding uh, of what it is that the Holy Spirit does. And we just looked at the first three chapters of of One Corinthians twelve last week. And if we remember, we talked about last week that part of learning to be led by the Spirit is learning to follow Jesus. That the Holy Spirit's work is to glorify Jesus, is to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus, and to empower us to follow Jesus. In fact, it's, it's, it's important that we recognize, it, as it says in 1 Corinthians twelve three, that it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability, that, that brings the revelation, the understanding, and that gives us the, the faith and the ability to actually say that Jesus is Lord. I don't mean utter those words, heathens can utter the words, Jesus is Lord, that means nothing. And I don't even mean just say that to impress people. I mean, it's got to be a work of God's Spirit to bring us to a place that we can submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. And this is what he's wanting to do. All that God is wanting to do by his Spirit is about bringing us under the Lordship of Jesus in such a way that we can testify that that is indeed good news. It's good news to know that Jesus is Lord, that He reigns, that He has all authority. That's great news. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the pastor of the church and not me? Can I get an amen for that one? In all seriousness, it's great news to know that Jesus rules. He reigns. He's in authority. And so the Holy Spirit's work is to Help us to understand that and bring us into a place that we learn to walk in that. But it's not just an individual thing. What God wants to do in us is something that's corporate. He wants to work in us together, collectively. And so this week we're talking about that part of being led by the Spirit is learning to serve His people. And I think this is crucial to understand because often when we talk about things like the gifts of the Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, people get bogged down with some of the details. And let's be honest, we're maybe not going to agree on some of the details. Definitely not all churches agree on some of the details. But what is plain as day in the text is that the, the, the motivation that God has is that we would learn by His power to serve one another. There's an other-centeredness that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us that we need to be open to. Now, Paul starts off this section and he says this. He says, there's diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. Differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. In fact, in this section from verses 4 all the way down to verse 11, he uses this word, same, Seven times. Same. He wants us to understand something right off the bat, that it's God who does the work. And He does the work in a variety of ways. The work that God wants done, it's got to be Him who does it. The thing that separates, one of the things that separates Christianity from all our world religions and philosophies... As all the world, religions and philosophies, the, the onus is on you as the person, as the human being, to, to uh, uh, obey the commands and to uh, uh, follow the tenets or to achieve nirvana or whatever the case might be. It's up to you to improve yourself. It's your power. It's your responsibility. You have to do these things. And the main tenet of Christianity is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a work that God does. God does this work. And that's not just kind of God opens the door and gets you into the kingdom, and the rest is up to you. God actually desires to, as we saw last week, indwell us. God the Spirit living in us, so that He's in us, working in us, changing us from the inside out. Listen, and and part of that change is teaching us not just to think about ourselves, but to think about others, and not just to think about others, but to serve others. And that's what these things are about. And this is really what the Corinthian church was lacking. They weren't lacking in the manifestations. Paul said earlier, we, again we saw this last week, that, that they lacked in no gift. I mean, this was a church that was alive. This was a church that was open to the, to, the, to the things of the Spirit. They were doing a lot of things, but often they weren't doing these things in a way that was benefiting other people. They were doing these things because they liked these things. They felt better when they did these things, as opposed to, what do the people need today now there's a reality that there's an application here for obviously when Paul's writing his thoughts are on the Corinthian church and understanding what God was doing in the Corinthian church helps us to understand the context and understanding the context helps us get the Holy Spirit's message but there is an application here for us as an individual church and there's also an application for the body of Christ as a whole and I think it's important that we recognize, okay, that as we talk about specifics, we talk about the specific convictions that we have at Servants Church. And next week, we're going to talk a lot about, or two weeks from now, we're going to talk a lot about specifically uh, how that should pan out on our gatherings together. Because we do have specific convictions based on Scripture, but that how we feel these things should should sort of show up, how we want to pursue the work of the Spirit as we gather together. But it's important to recognize that as I say these things, as I give a biblical reason for these things, I am not saying it's got to be my way or the highway. I'm not saying servant church got it right; everybody else is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying here is, is as I've walked with Jesus since 1987 and been in ministry full-time since 1991 and wrestled through all these things, these are the convictions that, that God's put on my heart. And as we've raised up leadership in the church, these are convictions that these guys have confirmed and clarified. So that as we come before God's Word and we say, okay, the authority of Scripture, how do we walk in these things? This is what God's showing us. And we don't have it right. I mean, I'll be honest with you, even as I talk about the specifics, I still say, gosh, Lord, I believe this, but we're not walking in this like we should. So I want to be clear about this because I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to cower away from being clear about what I believe, but I also don't want to come across so dogmatic that you think I'm saying every other church is wrong. Now there are other churches that are wrong. I believe that. I mean, obviously. The Bible says there are other churches that are wrong. Jesus talked about his church and showed how his church in the book of Revelation was wrong. He writes to seven churches. Some he says, great job, keep going. Some he says, great job, but fix this. Some he says, you suck, you better change. Paraphrasing, obviously, but that's the, the bottom line. So there's a reality that there are churches that are off, including in these areas. But I am not saying... We have it all right. I'm just saying, this is what we want to pursue. We feel that God is saying, this is how you know I'm being led by you. So there are diversities of gifts and ministries and activities, but it's the same God working. God's doing a work. We pray, often pray, even on a Sunday morning, God, would you do a work in this church, but also would you do a work in every church in this city that preaches the gospel? And those that are tempted to not preach the gospel anymore, would you bring radical conviction and change them? because we don't think we're going to be the only group of people that reaches this city for Jesus. 97% of the population of this city doesn't even darken the door of a church. Do you think we're going to do that all by ourselves or each other 97%? No. So we want to pray for the whole body and, and in churches that do things differently than us. Now, Paul here is is wanting, I think, first and foremost, for us to understand it is God who does the work. And it's, it's not an accident that he says, look, it's the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. That's not three different entities. We're talking about one God. So when we talk about it's God who does the work, we're talking about the triune God. Now, this is important. It's important because sometimes we can... Uh, we can forget that what God wants to do above all things or what God wants to do through all the things that he does is help us to see him as he is. There's nothing greater that God can give us than to, to see him who he is, a glimpse of his glory. This is why Moses, after Moses, had done miracles after miracles after miracles and had seen all kinds of radical stuff, when he's alone with God, he says, God, just show me your glory. That's really all I want. Yeah, it was cool to thrash a Pharaoh and all that, but really what I want to see is your glory. I want to see what you're like. And all that God does is to show us what He's like. There's nothing greater He can do for us but to say, here I am. There's nothing greater He can give us than say, here's who, who, here's who I am. You can come and have a relationship with me. Nothing greater. So it's all about His glory. Now, it's interesting because when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the glory of the triune God, which means that God Himself is both, listen, one, and many. In other words, there is a unity of the Godhead. There's only one God, but there's three persons. Now I'm not going to give you any analogies because almost every analogy about uh, uh, the Trinity is, gets into false doctrine. But here's what I'm going to say to you, simply put, about the Trinity, okay? The Bible teaches that the, the Jesus is God, that the Spirit is God, and that the Father is God. The Bible seems to indicate really clear there's a distinction between those persons. We see that probably uh, best illustrated at Jesus' baptism, where you see Jesus being baptized, the spirit to Seneca dove, and the voice of the Father saying, "This is my beloved son." The Trinity is a biblical doctrine. The reason it's an important doctrine. listen, is because it's by the Trinity that we understand that relationship in love didn't begin when God made man. It's always existed between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. A perfect relationship, a perfect love, a perfect glory that we are invited into through Jesus. Now, this is important because Paul, is, I, I don't think by accident, is mentioning every member of the Trinity here. Because he wants the Corinthian church and the Holy Spirit wants our church to know the difference between this, these two sentences. God is working and God is working. You see, you said the same sentence twice. Let me emphasize it, okay? What the Corinthian church has done, and what many churches do that are in the charismatic stream, actually take that back, many churches who are not in the charismatic stream do the same thing. What many churches do, full stop, is they say, God is working. And they emphasize the working, whether it's from a charismatic perspective or a non-charismatic perspective. They emphasize the workings of God. These are what the workings of God are. And as long as we have these things, that's what matters. But what Scripture emphasizes is God is working. In other words, It is important that we make sure that we know what is being done is of God, but it's just, or maybe more important, that we know it's God who's actually working. Because what happens is, as we said last week as well, what happens is all the things that we think that God should do or wants to do, those things can be counterfeited. And because they can be counterfeited, what can happen is we can be thinking, oh, everything's going on swimmingly, God's really working, but really we're just focused on the working and not not really sure, is this God, is this you? Is this really you? Are you doing these things? In fact, one of the things that, that uh I worry about, to be honest, as a church, one of the things I'm concerned about as a pastor is because our church is I don't know, I guess you might say safe. Because our church is a place where, because we value doctrine and we try to be discerning and we want to measure everything against the authority of Scripture, our church is safe. And because it's safe, sometimes what can happen, people come here to feel safe, to be safe, and they assume, therefore, it must be, God must be at work. Now, God is faithful. He works even when we are faithless But I really want, guys, for us as a church to be pursuing, that's just why we want to emphasize prayer, to say, God, we don't ever want to assume that you're having your way with us. We we always want to assume that you should have your way with us. We just want to go back to your word and say, Lord, you do this, God. You work in us. And this is important because if, if it's not God's working, guess what? It's not going to actually bear any fruit. Check this out. These are the words of Jesus, and I purposely just am quoting Jesus for this. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says in, in 6.63 of John's Gospel, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. He says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do a lot. Oh wait, no. You can do nothing. You see guys, what God wants to do is show himself to his people through his people. But if it's not God doing it, what we're seeing may not be God. Do you understand what I'm saying? What we're seeing may just be the flesh and it profits nothing. Now, he goes on to say this in verse, in verse 4, he says, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 7, he says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Probably, could be possibly the key verse in this whole chapter 12. And we, the word manifestation, it does mean something that's shown, something that's made known. So he's talking about that which shows the Spirit's work, okay? And then he lists several different, what we might call, gifts of the Spirit. In fact, let me point out in in verse 4, where he says diversity of gifts. The word for gifts there is that word charismata. That's where we get the word charismatic. And this is why, why we call ourselves a charismatic church, because we believe that the charismata is still happening. That God's still giving these gifts and working these things out. But he names these things. He says the word of wisdom through the Spirit. He says that he talks about the word of knowledge. He talks about, uh, gifts of healing. He talks about working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. And let me just say really clearly, we believe all those things still happen today. That there are still supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are continuing today. And let me explain to you quickly why. It's not because of our experience. It's because of what the Scripture says. Check this out. Mark chapter 16. The Bible says this, And these signs will follow those who believe. Not just those who preach, those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. In other words, the Scripture teaches that those who believe, not just those who teach, in other words, you could say if it said those who teach, it was only for the apostles, but it doesn't say that. It says those who believe, these signs will follow. Now, let me make something really clear. This is not teaching us that everyone who believes has to do all these things. We'll see in 1 Corinthians, it just doesn't happen that way. It's not teaching that. The people who believe that it teaches that are the people who like handle snakes. And say, look at this, we have the Holy Spirit. Snake handling churches. You guys ever heard of those things? Or seen a documentary of those things? You never heard of those guys? Really? Will has. <laughs> the, the, the snake handlers, you, uh, you can Google it. It's really weird, man. There are churches in America. Oh, that's right, it's in America. <laughs> it's always in America. <laughs> There are churches in America, I'm not kidding, Pentecostal churches in America where they prove, you have to prove that the Holy Spirit's in you by handling rattlesnakes. And people die every year doing this, trying to take this verse to make it mean something it doesn't mean. Not every believer will experience all these things, or sometimes even any of these specific things listed here. But it is saying that these things will keep happening. Now, check this out. Pentecost itself, the day of, in Acts chapter 2. Here's what we read. It says, And it shall come to pass, this is Peter. Remember, Peter's quoting Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel, talking about the work of the Spirit. This is at Pentecost. 3,000 people have heard the gospel as 120 were filled with God's Spirit and all spoke in tongues. Don't worry, we're going to get into tongues in two weeks in chapter 14. They all spoke in tongues. And what happened? These guys are going, what is going on? Are these guys drunk? What is happening? And Peter stands up. He goes, no, here's what's going on. And he quotes from, Joel, uh, from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Here's what he quotes. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants, men's servants, sorry, and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Then he says, And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. And when is this all going to happen? Now, pay attention here. Make sure it's on the screen right. Yeah. When is this all going to happen? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if if Peter is quoting Joel and saying these things are going to happen before, or you might say unto, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that the signs that he says were happening at Pentecost, that work of the Holy Spirit, and we talked about this again last week, it's why it's so important to recognize there's a great difference between the way the Holy Spirit ministered to Old Testament believers and the way he ministers to New Testament believers. There is a difference that comes with the New Covenant. With the Old Testament believers, it was just prophet, priests, and kings who had the Spirit indwelling in them, and then that was only temporary. New Testament believers, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and as Jesus said, abides with us forever. And what's happened at Pentecost is not just, uh, the, the apostles doing the supernatural stuff, but all 120 believers who are, have been in prayer for 10 days, waiting on God, waiting as Jesus told them to, to wait for the promise of the Spirit. They've experienced the promise of the Spirit, and they're able to do these supernatural things, and Peter's explanation is, this is what God has promised and it's going to happen until Jesus comes back. That great and terrible day of the Lord. Which means, biblically, these things will continue. I say this because I want to make sure you guys understand, this is not just me going, hey, my, my position is that I've had this experience and that experience and therefore these things must be true. Now, I've had lots of experiences, but that's not the point. The point is the scripture says these things will continue. There is no scripture anywhere. I challenge you who may be thinking, "No, I think these things died out. I dare you to find me one scripture that points that out. You can't find any. Now, a few of you smart people might be thinking, 1 Corinthians 13. Does it 1 Corinthians 13 say, "When the perfect comes, then the imperfect will be done away or we prophesy in part, but then we'll prophesy you know, in whole or whatever? Well, actually, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, you can look at it right now. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know as I am known. It's 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. That's the verse that people use to say, see, this stuff doesn't happen anymore because now the perfect has come. We have the canon of Scripture. The perfect has come. Hey, let me ask you something. You who know the Bible best here, You who know it much better than me, do you know as you're known? Do you know God the same way He knows you? No, you do not. Why? Because what it's talking about here is not the canon of Scripture, though the canon of Scripture is complete. That's why we taught on the authority of Scripture. What it's talking about here is the return of Jesus. When that Jesus, who is perfect, returns, when we see Him face to face, we will be made perfect and we're going to know Him the way He knows us. These things will continue. Now, we have for our study guides this week, for our house groups, we have, uh, it's like a four-page kind of a chart about what the different gifts of the Spirit are and and how how I would define those things where I see that how I back that up in scripture. There's only about twenty copies on the back table, along with about twenty copies of the study guide for this week. Um, and I made only reason I made copies that's why I was late today too, I was making those copies because I know some of you guys don't don't get on the internet really. So I made those copies for people who can't print it off. It'll be online by this afternoon, Lord willing. Okay, so don't take it if you can get it offline. But if you don't go online, I I encourage you to take that, okay, and look at that. Because rather than me take another hour to explain why I believe each one of these gifts is what it is, I'm encouraging you to do some homework. Check it out for yourself and talk about it. But as I said, these are supernatural manifestations that I believe God still does today. We'll talk about some of these things. I I guarantee you at the Q&A day, we'll be talking about all these things. (laughs) But just know this for a a fact. We believe this. Now, I want to make sure you, you know, too, that there are some people who say, well, okay, maybe you can't make a tight scriptural argument that those things have ceased, but we know from history these just don't happen anymore. Well, check this out. This is John Calvin. A quote from him. Now, John Calvin is not whom usually you would connect to charismatic in charismatic circles. But here's what John Calvin said, the great reformer. He said, Today we see our slender resources, our poverty in fact... But this is undoubtedly the punishment we deserve as a reward of our ingratitude, for God's riches are not exhausted, nor has liberality grown less. And this is a comment he's making on the work of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians 14. In other words, what he's basically saying in the context is the things that we see listed here, yeah, we don't experience these things like maybe we think we ought to, but it's not because God doesn't want to do it. It's because of us. And there's some truth to that. Now don't worry, I know some of you guys who are from non charismatic backgrounds, you're freaking out here, you're going, oh no, are we going to start trying to whip us up into a frenzy and going down this road? No, we're not doing that either. But I think we need to recognize that if we want to be those who who honor the authority of Scripture, we want to do what it says. We want to, by the grace of God and humility, pursue the things that, that lead to us being built up, and that includes being using all the gifts of the Spirit. Now, Listing all these things, he goes on to say in verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributes to each one individually, notice, as he wills. You see, we're not just talking about the triune God or the all-powerful God who still works in supernatural ways. We're talking about the sovereign God. You know what I mean by sovereign? It means God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Paul says a similar thing later on in, in verse 18 uh, the latter part of verse 18 of chapter 12, he says that God has set the members, uh, each of them in the body, just as He pleased. Now this is really important because we're talking about the glory of God being manifested and if we want people to see God as He is, we've got to trust that He's going to do what He wants to do. It's, 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 a, it's a big mistake, a big theological mistake for us to want the the the, the we, to want God to work in us in a specific way that God doesn't want to do. There's lots of things that you might want God to do through you that God's not going to do through you. There's lots of things, that, lots of gifts you might wish God would give you that God's not going to give you. Why? He's sovereign. He does what's best. He's good. And so the reality is, if we try to dictate or make God the Spirit do what we want Him to do, we are denying His sovereignty. we got to let Him do what He wants to do. And that goes both ways, man. That, that goes in the sense of trying to make something happen. Come on, this is what we want. Come on, Spirit, we want this. We want this. Come on, come on, come on. It means that, but it also means, oh, well, we just don't really want to go there. You know, that's kind of weird and so. You know, we just don't do that. This is why we're going to talk about the specifics when we get to chapter 14. Guys, I think we need to be open to what God wants to do and say, Lord, you do whatever you want to do, even if it's not what I want you to do. Now, let me me say something else with that. I do not believe, and I think we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 14, I do not believe that God does in somebody or through somebody what they do not want. And what I mean by that is, if you are freaked out by the idea of tongues, God's not going to give you the gift of tongues. Don't worry. You're not going to like just be in your bathtub one day and, And you're like, what's going on? Don't worry. That's not the way God's, God's not going to work that way. But I'll tell you what, God will often do what you don't want Him to do, and then as soon as He does it, you're so glad He did it. I'm not going to say that again. It's too hard to say. (laughs) Now, so we're talking about, we need to know it's God who does the work. This is is Paul's main point. It's God who's doing the work. But also listen, starting in verse 12, it's God who calls you to participate. And we need to understand every one of us as believers has a role. Look at verse 12. Paul says, For as the body is one, and men, had has many members, but also all the members of that one body being many are one body. So is Christ. Now, no, Paul is using the, the body, the human body as an analogy, not an actuality. And the reason I want that, to make that clear is sometimes we can take this analogy too far. People start thinking, what am I? Am I the big toe of Jesus? Oh, I know. I'm the spleen of Jesus. And you can take that analogy way too far. I'm serious. And it just causes confusion. That's not the point. His point is there are many members like a body. Okay? Remember, the Scripture uses other analogies to describe us corporately. Not just a body. It says that in 1 Corinthians 3, he says that we corporately are the temple of God. doesn't mean that we're like, okay, I must be the altar. I'm the candlestick. No. It's an analogy. Okay? We're the spiritual house of, of God. Where stones being rubbed together fit into the chief cornerstone. It doesn't mean that Jesus is a hunk of granite and that we're smaller hunks of granite. Obviously. Okay? It's an analogy. And all those analogies tell us something. Okay? So the analogy he's saying here is look, every member, every part of the body has a role. Okay? Verse 13 he says, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, here when he's talking about baptism, he's not talking about the coming upon of the Spirit, like we said last week. He's talking about the fact that the Spirit of God baptizes or uh, envelops us in the body. He puts us into the body. That's what the baptism, the word baptism means. Baptismo in the Greek, it means to be put into. This is one of the reasons why we practice uh, baptism by full immersion. We don't just sprinkle you, we dunk you. Because to be baptized means to be immersed. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that someone sprinkles that they're not of God. I'm just saying that's why we do it the way we do it. But there's a reality, okay, that when he says that the Spirit baptizes us, it means that that he baptizes us into the body. The Holy Spirit puts us in the body. We're surrounded. We're in that body. We're not just some sort of mole that's growing on the body of Christ. We are parts of the body of Christ. You get it. We're in there. We're a natural, uh, meant part in the body of Christ. And so it, it's important that we recognize here as well that it's it's uh, our part or our place in the body of Christ has nothing to do with, with our background. It has nothing to do with our ethnicity or our social status. It has all to do with the work of the Spirit, the sovereign work of the Spirit. Now, God will often take a person's natural gifts and use them in the body of Christ. There's no doubt about that, Okay. But it's, sometimes we make this mistake of thinking, oh, that guy's a great teacher. Man, he's so good at, at that high school he works at. If he would get saved, he'd be a great Bible teacher. And sometimes those guys get saved and they come in and they can't teach the Bible to save their life. Other people uh, seem to be just horrible at verbally communicating with people and then God saves them and calls them to teach them, they become very powerful teachers. The same goes with all the gifts of the Spirit. It's not who we are naturally that's as important as what God's doing supernaturally in us. You following me? Okay. Also, listen. He says in verse 14, In fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now, it's important to recognize this because one of the things he's telling us about unity here is that unity is not uniformity. That we're all going to be different in this one body. And God has designed that. He's designed that. So every believer has a role. And notice also, listen, verse 15, no believer has an excuse. He says, verse 15, if the foot should say, well, I'm not a hand, I don't really think I'm in the body. Or if the eye says, well, you know, or the ear says, well, I'm not a, an eye, I guess I'm not really of the body. Are they not of the body? Can you imagine if your physical body did that? You know, the eye just could decide on itself. I really, I want him to be in the ear, so forget it, Boop. Just comes out your head, you know what I'm saying? Can you imagine that happen? Your leg says, "I don't want to work anymore." Can you imagine if that happened? In fact, seriously, when we see physical uh, uh, illnesses that affect the neuro the nervous system, we look at someone who loses coordination. I don't. This is not me making light of this, so please don't laugh at any of this. We see that, and we think that is not right. It's not natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But so often. This is what the body of Christ looks like. Why? You have whole members that don't want to do anything. Because they think, well, I'm not really where I'm supposed to be. Now, it's interesting, if you read this, I don't know about you, but I read this and I think, the person who might say, well, you know, I'm not an ear. It almost sounds sounds like they have low self-esteem. In fact, I think it's fair that you would say, someone who has this has low self-esteem. Now, I want you to keep your... Uh, finger in 1 Corinthians, and I want you to go back to Romans chapter 12, just back, just a few pages to the book right before 1 Corinthians, the book of Romans chapter 12, and we want to talk about this kind of mindset that we have labeled now low self-esteem and how this affects the body of Christ, how this affects the, the, what the Holy Spirit wants to do in using us. In Romans chapter 12, Paul has first spent 11 chapters talking about how glorious the gospel of grace is. It's just, all he talks about is all that God has done for you, why he needed to do it, what it looks like, the glories of the gospel of grace. He gets to chapter 12, he says, now here's how you respond to it. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, speaking of the gospel of grace, he's just talked about, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, you lay your entire life on the altar and say, God, you saved me with your glorious grace. I'm yours. And he says, And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the reading of your mind. Change the way you think, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, that you can be evidence for the goodness of being under God's rule. This is your response to the gospel. Now, how does that work itself out? Look at verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly, as God has dealt with each one, or has dealt to each one, a measure of faith. Now, notice two things that are mentioned here, really important things about the working of the Spirit, about the gifts of the Spirit. Guess the context this is in. One is grace. Paul says, according to the measure of grace that I've received. Paul was an apostle by the grace of God. He didn't just apply for the job and he had the best CV. God put him there. When I first came to plant this church, I had uh, people come and say, you know, thanks for the ministry. It was good. Just always please remember, we didn't ask you to come here. Well, thank you very much. I feel welcome. Thank you. No, they didn't ask me to come here. I've had other people who came to the church and they would say, okay, well, yeah, God called you to the church, but God called me to the church. How come I can't call the shots? The thing is, guys, you need to know we don't ask for the positions that we get or at least we don't weasel our way in. That that did happen once in the book of Acts. It was attempted to happen by a guy named Simon the Sorcerer who said, hey, can you give me that power of the Holy Spirit? I'll pay you for it. And Peter said, you know what? You're full of bitterness and you're a son of the devil. Money perish with you. Now, we don't weasel our way into these positions. It's God who appoints us. He gives us the grace to be there. Listen, that is everything. You are what you are by the grace of God, which doesn't just mean, hey, I can do this great dynamic thing by the grace of God. It means, listen, if I'm going to do the thing that God calls me to do, even the most minute thing, I'm going to do it by the grace of God. Maybe your gift is is something, or or, or your gifts are, are around things that are very simple and practical, things that you tell yourself, well, anybody could do this. And God's saying, No, do you realize that's the grace of God to you? So, grace. No, grace. You don't deserve the gifts that you have, they are graces to you. Charismata. The beginning of that word charismata for gifts is charis, which is grace. Listen. Also, though, faith. He says faith. He says that we should listen. He says in Romans 12. He says, God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. See, God gives you a gift. When you're born of the Spirit, God gives you at least one gift, if not many. But He also develops your faith so you know how to use those gifts. So you have faith to use those gifts. And it takes faith to use those gifts. If you are operating in your gifts and it's not requiring you to trust God or depend on God, you're probably doing the wrong ministry. Or you're doing it the wrong way. He says, listen, verse 3 of chapter 12 of Romans, he says, for I say, or verse 4, I'm sorry, he says, for as many, we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Have then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us? What does it say? Let us use them. That's in italics because it's implied, but it's so obviously implied the, the, the translators rightly put it in there. You've got to use what God gives you. Listen, when you say, oh, I'm just this and I really can't do that, that's you can call that low, self, low self-esteem, but you know what low self-esteem is, according to Scripture? Pride. Pride. It's basically saying, hey, what I have, it's not very good. You're saying, God, yeah, thanks for the gift. doesn't mean very much. I think I'll just stick it in my pocket. Guys, this grieves the Holy Spirit. It quenches the Spirit. No one has an excuse. Now, going back to 1 Corinthians 12. Okay? Look at verse 20. Paul says, But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hands, I have no need of you. The hand can't see the feet. I have no need of you. In other words, there can't be this mindset... That says, you know what? Not only am I not useful, but really I don't need anybody else's help. You, you might, you might want to call this, we uh, uh, might call this an, an over uh, independence. I don't really need the, the other gifts or manifestations of God's Spirit through God's people, I'm okay on my own. This is also pride. Now, what, what Paul's going to say here is that not only does every believer have a role and no believer has an excuse not to use the gifts they have, but also, listen, every believer should be uh, pursuing authentic fellowship. Do you know what authentic fellowship is? It's when we as believers come together to give and receive from one another. We recognize that all that we have both materially and spiritually is the gift of God and we want to share that because we share the same life of God through Jesus. That's what fellowship means. Fellowship means common life. We share a common life. So we should, as believers, be pursuing authentic fellowship. And when you say, "Ah, I don't really need that person. I don't really need their gifts. I don't really need what they have to offer. When that's our mindset... We're not receiving, we're not pursuing real fellowship. You know what I've found? I have found that often God speaks for the most unlikely people. And that often God serves our needs through the most unlikely people. People that I think didn't really like me, or wouldn't have anything to do with me, or weren't even in my church, or maybe we were in a, in a church that I might think is a little bit questionable, that God will use those people to meet my needs. And I think, wow, that's amazing. Now, this, this is the thing, guys. God wants us to have that humility that we can receive. In fact, really, I think when we have a mindset that says, you know, I don't really need that, I'm not really of that ilk, what ends up happening is we are doing exactly what the Corinthians do and being carnal. Listen to this. This is what Paul said about the Corinthian church in chapter 3. He says, and brethren, I could speak to you, couldn't, uh, brethren, I'm sorry, let me start again. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive, and even now you're still not able. And here's why. He says, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Paul says, listen, this sectarianism, this, I don't even need them, I only need me and my little group. That is carnality. It grieves the Spirit, and it's you not pursuing real fellowship. And this is what God's saying. He's saying we need to stop this. Paul's saying, listen, you, you can't say that it's wrong. Instead, what does he say verse 23? And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, we have greater modesty. But on our presentable parts, we have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part that lacks it. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about how we apply that when we get to chapter 13. But notice what he says, this is the the, the motivation behind it, verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, no division, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. In other words, listen, God is calling us to, the Spirit is leading us to a kind of fellowship that says, your pain is my pain. A kind of fellowship says that says, your need is my need. Your victory is my victory. We share in this together. That's what God's calling us to be. He's calling us to have a care for one another. Do you realize that phrase, one another, I think one of the most important phrases in all the New Testament. 31 commands. 31 one another commands in the New Testament. You know why else this is important? Because one of the mistakes that we make, and this is one of the other reasons why uh, um, I, I'm not taking the time during this uh, series to actually explain every gift of the Spirit, what I think it means and why. And, and the reason is because one of the mistakes we make, and I see this happening in charismatic and non-charismatic churches, is that we think, if I could just figure out what my gift is, then everything will be fine. No. It doesn't matter what your gift is. Just serve. Just seek the one another ministries. You know what will happen if you start one another, one another? If you start praying for one another and and, and admonishing one another and singing to one another and serving one another and not judging one another, you start doing all the one another ministries, you know what's going to happen? Your gifts are going to come to the surface and the body around you is going to go, wow, you're really good at, boom. And the ministry is going to come to to the top. But you know what the problem is? We don't want to do that. We have this mindset that says, well, I just want to know what I'm good at. I want to feel better. I want to be... We think, I want to be edified. You know why? Because we think edification means feeling better. That is not what the Bible means by edification. To edify means to build up according to a plan. Do you know what it means? To be made like Jesus. Jesus is the the plan. He's the architect's drawing. And the Spirit is making us like Him. He's building us up. An edifice, a building. He's making us like Jesus. That's what it means to edify. Now, the bottom line is this. When we're talking about authentic fellowship, we're talking about learning to serve one another. Learning to receive ministry from one another, but also learning to serve one another. Check this out. Great section of Scripture in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Check this out. Paul says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, have the same love, be of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the mindset of Jesus. This is what the Spirit wants to lead us to. This is the attitude that leads to the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. It's when we are learning to say, God, what what does this person in front of me need? Let's stop trying to dictate to God what our experience should be and let's start getting on our face before God and saying, Lord, how can I serve my brothers and sisters when we come to church, when I see them in the street? When i going to have them over for a meal. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to lead us to. Now, we're almost done. In this last section, Paul says in verse 27, Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. And it's important to recognize that he's saying something profound. It's easy to kind of skip over that, like, oh, he said that basically uh, before, but it's important to recognize. Paul's saying, you are. He's saying, here's your identity. You, you are corporately the body of Christ. In other words, you have a corporate identity. Now, this is important. It's important because we have to get away from God. We need to move away from this Western mindset of individual Christianity. We need to move away from a mindset that says, I go to church because it blesses me. Now, I hope you're blessed when you come to church. I really do. I I really do. Seriously. If you come to this church and you're going, look, I'm not growing at all. I I just don't get anything from the Bible studies. And, you know, I just don't really like to worship with those people. And, you know, besides the problem that you probably have with your heart, you might be in the wrong church. I mean, there's a reality that not every ministry is for everybody. But here is a reality that we need to decide, okay, God, where would you plant me and how would you have me serve? Because this is who I am. See, what we tend to do in the Western churches, we tend to take all the corporate analogies that God uses and apply them to us as individuals. I'm the bride of Christ. That's creepy for a guy, for one. For two, it's not accurate for an individual. We are the bride of Christ, collectively. We are the bride of Christ. And there's a reality, guys, listen, that we have a corporate identity, that we should, we should listen, endeavor, as it says in Ephesians, to keep that identity, endeavor to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is who we are. We are a family. We're going to be together forever. I had the privilege of doing some marriage counseling with a couple this week that does not go to our church. And as we were talking, they were just like really. They kept gushing over like we can't believe we're doing this and this and that. I'm like, no, it's, it's okay. And I finally, it was to be honest, it was getting a bit annoying. And I said, I, I said, I said, guys, listen, we're going to be in heaven forever together. And they're like, oh yeah. What, you have to go to my church before I help you? Now, the reality is, my priority is you guys in in my fellowship. Just like even before you guys, my priority is the church at home, my family. But still, we're going to be in eternity together. And you know what? We just want to serve. Now, we have this corporate identity, but listen, we have a personal responsibility. He says we're members individually. And this is also where I think we get it wrong. And I have to confess... I've seen a bigger problem with this in the U.K. than I have in the U.S. I'm sorry to say. I already admitted there's wacky stuff in the U.S. I've admitted that. But one of the things I happen to see, especially with you males, I don't know what it is, but it seems like British males are the most irresponsible people I've ever met. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be mean. But sometimes British guys can't stand up to their wives, don't know how to serve, don't know how to persevere through tough times, all of you, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all of you guys do this, but it's, 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 it bothers me. I'm not talking about manliness as of like, let's go kill a horse or something. I'm talking about, but I am talking about, listen, I'm talking about a masculinity where we say, I realize that God calls me to set the tone for, for my family, for my church. Therefore, I want to be an example of responsibility. I want to lead through service. I really believe, guys, that we, you know, the church has been hurt by accepting too much of our culture's feminism. And this is not an anti-woman statement. God, God wants to use, God does and wants to use women. You are on an equal level before God. We are saved by the same gospel, the same grace, the same faith. But there's a reality that biblically, God calls men to go first, and we don't do this. Now, it's not, though, just a male problem. In the body of Christ, it's a total problem. We tend to be so focused on our own identity and then a corporate responsibility. Everybody needs to serve everybody else. And you know what happens when we look that way? We go, well, nobody else is serving. I'm not going to serve. But you know what the Bible calls us to? A corporate identity. God calls us all to be one, a personal responsibility. God, you call me to serve even if nobody else does. You call me to be faithful even if nobody else is. We will not see revival in the church until we get this in our head. There's a corporate responsibility and a personal responsibility uh, a corporate identity and a personal responsibility that we need to have. We will not see revival until that happens, if we ever do see revival. There needs to, to have that happening. Now, he says this, verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church, notice, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Now, I want you to understand something. We've talked about it so far it's God who does the work, we've talked about it. it's God who calls you to participate as an individual, but also listen. You need to understand it's God who sets his priorities for the church. Now, Paul could have said God has appointed in the church these and not use the words first, second, third, then. But the Holy Spirit inspired him to say first, second, third, then. Why? Because these are the ministries that have priority. Now, we'll probably have to answer some questions in the Q&A session in a couple of weeks, but let me just say this, uh, just to make it plain, okay? When, what, what Paul's mentioning here, when he mentions apostles, the work of the apostles was to clarify the doctrine of the church in planting new churches that were doctrinally sound. This is why the Bible says in the book of Acts that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Not just doctrine, not just teaching, but the apostles' teaching. Okay? We don't have any of those kind of apostles anymore. We still have apostles in the sense there's a gift of church planter, but we don't have any of those guys who are establishing new doctrine. That's already been established. I'll be clear about that. Second, when he talks about prophets, there's a distinction between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets, and there's even a difference between prophets as like James, the brother of Jesus who wasn't an apostle but God used to bring about Holy Scripture, and a prophet or a gift of prophecy that we'll talk about in chapter 14. This is talking about prophecy in an instructional sense. Teachers. Pretty plain what teachers are, aren't they? Now, do you realize the, the, what's going on here? Paul's saying here's the priorities in the church doctrine established, truth foretold, or foretold, and truth explained. Priorities. God set those priorities. This is why we put a big emphasis on Bible teaching. Because that's the priorities of God for the body. That's not all that should be happening. But it happens, listen, so that you as the saints can be equipped so you can do the work of the ministry that's been mentioned here in chapter 12. That's why God sets those priorities. So you can be equipped to do that ministry. To serve one another and receive from one another. Notice he says, verse 29, of course, not everyone's going to be an apostle or a prophet or a teacher or a worker of miracles or half gift of healing and so on and so forth. Not everyone's going to be doing those things. Those are, that's a rhetorical question each time. The answer is obviously no. But he says in verse 31, but desire earnestly the best gifts, and yet it'll show you a more excellent way. The best gifts. What are the best gifts? Well, there's a practical priority to that that we'll talk about in chapter 14. But here's, a, here's another thing to think about. The best gifts or the best charismata or the best work of the Spirit is that work that helps the person in front of you become more like Jesus. To trust God like Jesus did. To believe that what Jesus did was enough. To know that they're accepted because of Jesus. To know that God cares for them, protects them, meets their needs. Whatever the manifestation of it, the best one is, whatever helps that to happen to that person. Now, the thing is, we don't know how to do that unless we're taught. Which is why, when you read the Gospels, you know what you read? You read that Jesus did three main things. He taught, which means he explained the truth, He preached, which means he proclaimed the truth, and he did miracles, healed and so forth. Interesting thing, if you look in the Gospels, you'll see that you can look at every time that he healed and every time that he preached and add those up, and those things together are only half as much as the fact that he taught. The Bible talks about Jesus' teaching twice as much as it talks about miracles or preaching. That's significant in my mind. That's a priority of God. That doesn't mean that, that the teachers in the church are better than the rest of the body. Not at all. What it means is God has his priorities. Let me close with this. At this point, we can start thinking, well, what I want is to be one of those guys who does that. You know, I want one of those dynamic gifts where where I have a big impact or something. But it's important for us to recognize something, Okay. God is not going to reward us for the gifts we possess. He's going to reward us based on how we use the gifts we possess. Remember, remember in Acts, or I mean, sorry, in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus tells about the parable of the talents, one guy he gives five, Another the guy he gives two, and the guy he gives one. And the guy who has just one talent, what does he do? He buries his talent, and Jesus basically, I don't know what to say, he basically sends the guy to hell. It's pretty heavy. But the guy who has two talents and the guy who has five talents, they both were faithful with their talents, producing two more talents, so to speak. And to each one, he says the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. The exact same reward. Why? Because they were both faithful. Yeah, but the guy who had five, he had five talents. That's so much better. It's so much more responsibility is what it is. This is why God even talks about when it comes to the types of gifts there are. It says in the book of James, "Let not many of you become teachers, because you have a what? Stricter judgment." So if you're coveting my position, think twice. If you want it bad enough, let's talk, because I'm happy to give it to someone else if God so God wills. I have gotta say, you, you can ask Adam if you don't believe me. He's in training right now to become a pastor. He will come alongside, probably by summer. And, and, and we will serve together. You will have pastors and not just a pastor. And he will tell you that the way that he feels just getting ready for that position. No, no, don't, don't be coveting other people's gifts. Covet the best gifts. Look at the people around you and say, Holy Spirit, show me how to serve this person right here and give me whatever gift I need to help them become like Jesus. Amen.